it's such a shame that it's so hard to find good, honest, legal help these days. How would a dream, cowboys? Welcome back, everybody, to the HBO Boys podcast. Today we are recapping and reviewing the series premiere of the new HBO film noir drama, Perry Mason, the remake of the 1950s cultural icon TV show. Episode 1 is entitled Chapter 1, oh that's easy, directed by Tim Van Patten and written by Roland Jones and Ron Fitzgerald. I'm James, and with me, as always, is Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Hello. Yeah, I felt particularly ready to watch this new version of Perry Mason. We have spent the last three weeks watching old episodes from the 1950s show, the nomenclature on those episodes, the names of which are the case of blank 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 and those blank blank blanks usually have some alliteration involved sadly chapter one much worse name just a, a bad name overall as a as opposed to the alliteration that the old show is giving us but you know this is an origin story this is set prior to when perry mason was a defense attorney even he, he was not that he was still a private eye when this show was happening well, yeah, it's so good that we watched all those episodes of Perry Mason in preparation for this, uh, but not actually because it's nothing like Perry Mason, except that there's a character named Perry Mason and another character named Della, and it takes place in L.A. It doesn't take place in the same decade. He's not an attorney. There was a, there was a brief scene in a courtroom, but he was not defending anyone. No, I think that scene is important, though. It pretty much was the only scene that referenced this version of Perry Mason's feelings about the judicial system and perhaps how he could change it in the future if he had a separate job, maybe the job that he has in the original series. Oh, so you think, what, this is the Perry Mason origin story? Right, well, that's how it was pitched to Matthew Reese, the titular Perry Mason, whom, by the way, it will be pointed out multiple times, was originally going to be Robert Downey Jr., but it is now the American's Matthew Reese. But yeah, this is supposed to be an origin story, so we'll see how it goes. The director, Tim Van Patten, we talked about him briefly on a previous episode. He's a HBO darling. He's directed episodes of Boardwalk Empire and Game of Thrones and The Sopranos and The Wire and Sex in the City. One of the episodes of Boardwalk Empire that he directed was the series finale. Plus, he directed, you know, 17 other ones. He directed 20 episodes of The Sopranos, The Pacific, Game of Thrones' first two episodes, so including the pilot, a Black Mirror episode called Hang the DJ. So, he's a prolific TV director. Hang the DJ, a great episode of Black Mirror. We talk about Black Mirror and Game of Thrones a lot on this show. I mean... What do you want from us? To talk about awful things all talk the time? Talk about Perry Mason? Yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, that's like our exact goal at the moment. Chapter one begins. It's L.A., 1931. So 20 years before the start of the original Perry Mason show. This is a young Perry Mason, I guess. This one has stubble and is wearing a fedora. His shoulders are going to grow out so far. In the next 20 years. If the 1950s show has told us or educated us on anything, it's the formidable mountains that are Perry Mason's shoulders. L.A., 1931, a very dark night, a place called Angel's Flight. I don't know where this is in L.A. or if it's even a real place, but it's the top of a very steep hill with a cable car that slowly goes down it. It is Christmas Eve, I believe. 
There's a kidnapping drop-off. The two nervous parents are receiving instructions from the kidnappers over the phone to leave a suitcase of money on a desk in an office. The cable car goes slowly past the office window, and they see their baby, and they're instructed to run to him, but when they get there, their son is dead, and his eyes have been sewn open, and yeah, holy shit, in the first scene, and in the first few minutes, already dead baby. HBO! Terrifying as holy fuck, yeah, how dare you, HBO? That is a dick move. These parents are Matthew and Emily Dodson, played by Nate Cordry, who was in Mindhunter and is Rob Cordry's younger brother, and his wife, Emily Dodson, played by Gail Rankin of The Greatest Showman and Glow fame. Their son was taken. They left a case full of money with 100K in 1931, which would be $1.7 million now. So they have access to $1.7 million in some way. When they go to pick up their baby, Charlie, supposed to be very alive, turns out super dead, and its eyes are, as you said, stitched open. Why? Well, to make it look like he was still alive when when they had him looking out the window at his parents. Oh, come on. You could have just showed the back of his head. I feel it's just an extra step of a sadistic asshole. And I wonder if people, uh, specifically me, are going to say like, oh, this is just more like HBO edgelord shit to put that in the very beginning of the first episode. I mean, that's exactly what it was. It was to let you know that this show has been HBO-ified, and it's a dark origin story. Yeah, we are a long way from the 1950 Perry Mason. Right. He gets his dirk out early in his career and then edges up to falsifying evidence to win cases 20 years later. Smash text, which covers the whole screen, because that's you know that's what we're doing these days. Perry Watchmen Mason. Did the exact thing. You know, just like Watchmen, Joker, what else? What other stuff has done that? All of it. Perry Mason is eating at a diner with his friend Pete. Pete is an older, middle-aged gentleman, and, and I'm like, well, you're not Paul. Get out of here. Right. Paul not even in the pilot episode. Paul being, if you don't know, Perry Mason's right-hand man in the original series. This is Pete Strickland, played by Shea Wiggum of Death Note, American Hustle, and he's also the guy who wants to kill everybody in Waco, and it also introduces us to Perry Mason, whom we talked before with is Matthew Reese. They're both smoking bogues, they're chilling, and Strickland is ribbing Perry Mason about being cheated out of life's thrills, and... Perry Mason looks up and says something cool about really not caring about that. And I have to ask you, James, how would this moment have been different if that was Robert Downey Jr. who said it? I gotta say, uh, Matthew Reese giving off real strong Edward Norton energy. Yeah, a lot of Nort energy. I agree with you there. He looks like he is on drugs, close to murdering someone at any possible moment, but also emaciated. The dialogue here is really good. Well, throughout the whole show, it's very snappy 1930s type of speaking kind of like uh well like the gilmore girls dialogue where we're talking really fast are we talking fast i think so are we, what we're we saying clever who can tell we're talking so fast <laughs> yeah it's like aaron sorkin wrote it but you know he did not they could not afford him well everybody talked like an aaron sorkin show in the 30s that's just how the 30s were i've been in a time machine i have gone back then gotta tell you food's better the air is cleaner and everybody talks like they're trying their very best to spit the words at you. There's a very large, fat gentleman also in the restaurant who they are tailing named Chubby Carmichael. They're tailing him as part of their private investigation work. Chubby Carmichael is clearly modeled after Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, 
whose acting career was wrecked by a false murder charge. But in this instance, his acting career is trying to be wrecked by Perry Mason and his friend Pete Strickland. They tail Chubby to a movie theater where one of his movies is showing. Everyone's laughing and having a good time, except for Perry because he's so emo and he just cannot chill. Yeah, he does not like having fun or, you know, laughter. The music behind this is a wavy trumpet. This is a good time to tell you that the music was done by Terrence Blanchard who has been the composer of Inside Man, 25th Hour, and Black Klansman as well, and I think did a really good job. HBO is known for having great music. To be fair, they're known for employing Raman Jawadi. But in this instance, it's Terrence Blanchard, and he did a great, great job. After the movie, they tailed Chubby by car. They discussed the case. Perry's been hired by his movie studio, Chubby's, in order to dig up dirt on him so that they'll have cause to fire him. Chubby meets with a flapper-type-looking lady, even though it's the 30s, not the 20s, but still, just looks like a flapper, and they go inside her place. Perry, very sneakily and and, and criminally, <laughs> also goes into the house and starts snapping pictures of uh, a naked Chubby Carmichael eating like a three-course dinner off of the naked body of a red-headed woman. The red-headed woman is Velma, played by Madeline Zima of New Haven, Connecticut. I'm going to point out when anyone's from Connecticut, because that's where James and I are from. And this is an HBO show, did you know that, James? Where nudity can happen, and so can just, like, food, sex, anything you really want. Perry lockpicks the door, goes inside, stands around for too long. Too long, I'd say. Takes way too many pictures, and then runs out at full speed because Chubby Carmichael has spotted him. Yeah, he jumps into the getaway car, Pete takes off, Chubby chases them down the road, totally naked, and not even ten minutes into the show, and we are off to the races on Dong Watch 2020, Perry Mason. Hashtag Dong Watch 2020. Prior to the first episode, James and I have taken bets on how many dongs will be in the show. James said one. I said, so I this said is the only two. dong I win. Yeah, I don't know. Price is right rules, man. I, 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 I have to assume there will be more dongage. The next day... Perry drives to his home, which is right next to an airfield. Terrible place to live. Yeah, living directly next to an airport is everybody's dream. The security guard at the gate won't let him in unless he says the password in Spanish, which Perry doesn't want to do, I guess. I don't know. He's too hungover to speak Spanish, I guess. He just wants to be let into his home without getting hassled. Coming home, Perry finds a Christmas gift that he had sent under his mailbox, marked return to sender, and he also has a shit ton of unpaid bills. So this is not the rich... Man about town, Perry Mason, that we are familiar with. No, this Perry Mason is down on his luck. The Christmas present was sent to Teddy Mason in Salinas, California, which is four and a half hours north by car, right below Silicon Valley. So it looks like a Christmas present to a little boy, probably his son, and it did not get to him. Totally despondent, and I like this. Perry's outside his house. He goes into his bedroom to smoke a cigarette. <laughs> Because it's the third best place, best place to to light a bog up <laughs> right next to your fucking bed. You just want to coat those pillowcases in in cigarette smoke. Cigarette smoke, sometimes lighter fluid, if you really want to tempt the fates. Yeah, he's smoking in his bedroom. He's sadly looking at a portrait of when he was a child. It is. Uh, at this what used to be his family's farm and now it's just a farmhouse next to an airfield. He corrals one of his cows back into the barn. He meets eyes with a older woman. And they smile at each other, but they don't speak. So he is taking care of the farm all by himself. P. 
Pete earlier asked him why he didn't like the movie they were watching that had to do with a farm. And and Perry is like, because I live there slash have grown up on one. Farms are not funny things to me. They are a reality. Serious a business, okay? It's not funny when someone gets kicked by a horse. People die that way. If my cow gets out, a plane might hit it. Okay. Both my grandfathers were killed by horse kicks to the face. Both my great grandfathers were horses. Later on, Perry is, you know, it's, it's his own house. So he can sleep anywhere, but he's sleeping in a really uncomfortable looking wicker chair. Probably passed out drunk. He does drink a whole lot. When his lawyer friend E.B. comes in to visit him. John Lithgow's in the building, yo. E.B. bemoans the state of Perry's house and the state of Perry's life, saying his parents would be horrified to see him living this way. But he's got good news because he has a high-paying job for him. A wealthy banker named Baggerty wants to hire E.B. and Perry on behalf of a friend of his who's in a spot of trouble. He's in a tough spot. Perry tries to come up with a bunch of excuses. He's like, oh, I got to meet with this Hollywood executive tomorrow. And, oh, I have to be a character witness for somebody else's, definitely not mine, and somebody else's trial tomorrow. E.B. reiterates, though, this is Herman Baggerly played by Robert Patrick, who is the T-1000. Super rich dude. You're going to want to be there at 3 p.m., you dumb, dumb idiot boy. The next day, Perry brings the pictures he took of Chubby's food sex to the Hollywood executive who hired him. The executive was really happy because now Chubby has violated his ethics clause and can be fired. He's about to give Perry his 200 bucks when Perry's like, yeah, it's going to be 600 bucks now because the woman that he was eating pork roast off of was one of your other starlets presumably one that you've invested a lot of money in and so this is blackmail now sorry so walt the guy who works at hammersmith productions is like crap our star velma fuller does not need these photos released realizes he's being blackmailed and says okay well i'm gonna bring these upstairs and we will see how it goes. As Perry is walking out, Walt points out that he has egg on his tie. And Perry's like, you know what? That is a solid point. EB also pointed that out to me. And I have found out recently that it is mustard. So I I tasted it, okay? I've dabbed my tongue on my tie several times today. And I thought to myself as that was happening, I was like, man, I wish Robert Downey Jr. was saying that. Well, it just reminded me of Shaun of the Dead. Oh, you got red on you. Perry goes to the morgue. To meet his creepy mortician friend, Virgil. Played by Jefferson Mays of our hometown, Clinton, Connecticut. Holy shit. We're, we're yeah. still... If you're hearing this, Jefferson, we've been trying to get in contact with you. Uh, right. R- Ryan is staking you. out your childhood home. I'm not a, doing a, that. A different family lives there now, but he's still looking through the windows at night, looking for this you. This is false. Nope. Not happening. Happening a little. Whatever. Shut up. <laughs> Virgil tries to talk to Perry about Christmas, but uh, Perry's like, yeah, I have nothing and no one. I spent Christmas taking pictures of, of a naked fat man, so. <laughs> That's how I spent my time, Virgil. Shut up. I'm going through effects right now to get a new tie. What do you think my life is? Yeah, he, <laughs> he's, Virgil's showing him all the, the ties that belonged to dead stiffs in the morgue. He's like, hey, do you want this dead body's tie? Or, oh, this dead body had a nice tie, too. He picks one out. Virgil says, well, that tie is better than the suit you're wearing. So he takes it and he doesn't have a mustard covered tie anymore. That's one win in the bag for Perry Mason. Virgil also hints at the horrific kidnapping gone wrong case and Perry doesn't seem very interested. He's like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, there was a cop there talking to Virgil about it. Virgil says it's the worst thing you've ever seen and 
Barry cheekily remarks back, what do you know what I've seen? Might as well have been Clint Eastwood in that moment. In the next scene, it turns out that Perry is not a character witness in a trial, but rather the defendant in a civil case brought against him by a real estate mogul whom he hurled a cow turd at. Tale is all this time. His lawyer does a super shitty job defending him, and Della walks in and sits in the gallery. At one point, Perry loses his patience with his own lawyer. He's like, hey, do you want to jump in and defend me? God damn it. And the judge, because it's the 30s, is like, hey... Don't take the Lord's name in vain in a courthouse, okay? Right. That's what the worst thing that happened with Perry when he said said the word God. So the attorney grilling Perry is like, okay, so you assaulted someone. Alvin, in fact. You threw shit at him. And he's like, yeah, I was mad. And he's like, okay, what about your dishonorable discharge from your military career? Perry was in World War I. And at which point Perry looks at his lawyer and he's like, feel free to jump in here, Frank. Okay. Know that you can object to that. Know it all. Have your eyes open, sir. After the trial, E.B., Della, and Perry go to meet with Baggerty in his mansion. He's hired them to help out Matthew and Emily Dobson, the two characters from the botched kidnapping. They're a working class family that belong to the same church as him. The Radiant Assembly of God. And I have to think, uh, this is like a radio church, probably inspired by Herbert W. Armstrong and the Worldwide Church of God, still exists today, originally called the Radio Church of God. So it was just like, before televangelism, you had radioevangelism. And I think that this is a reference to that. But rather than Herbert W. Armstrong, their prophet is called Sister Alice who Baggerty says totally changed his life around and brought him to the Lord. Sister Alice, going to be played by Tatiana Massily. Definitely said that last name wrong. Of Orphan Black fame. Was not in this episode. Most likely will be in the next episode. And the Dotsons who we met earlier are also a part of said church. Baggerly is grilling them and they are grilling him back to just kind of figure out if they are the right mix for each other eb played by john lithgow lets uh baggerly know that perry is a stand-up gentleman the way that he proves that is he says well you know perry was in the war and baggerly was like oh you went over there he's like yeah with a lot of other farm boys i I went over there, and E.B. tells him that he survived the Battle of the Argonne. Argonne? Anyway, it was like the last major part of the final offensive of World War One. so super bloody. A lot of people died, but Perry Mason was there and didn't die, so you should take him seriously. And Baggerty's like, so how did you get discharged? Honorably, I assume? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 shut up. Perry asks Baggerty why he wouldn't just trust the police to handle this case. They are on it, after all. And Baggerty suggests that he does not trust the LAPD. And Perry's like, yeah, me neither. Which I will say, that line and the part inside of the courtroom where Perry is like, hello, my lawyer, what are you doing, sir? Those are the two closest moments to the original Perry Mason show that I found. Not trusting the LAPD and also being within a courtroom and thinking what's happening is stupid and you could do it better. Our three main characters go to visit the Dobsons. Two detectives are already there, Holcomb and Enos, and they are very rudely interrogating Matthew. 
who's starting to lose his cool. They're suggesting, well, maybe you had something to do with it, and he's getting very upset. Perry makes his way through the house, snapping pictures of this and that. He looks out the window of the baby's room and sees that you can see clear into the other yards. And he also finds a portrait of Sister Alice. He also sees Emily Dodson sitting on her bed, just, you know, being real sad about not having a son anymore. There is a ceramic turtle on one of the countertops. The two detectives downstairs, one being Holcomb but one being Ennis. I just want to point out that Ennis is Red Scare from Watchmen. We just watched Watchmen and did a podcast about it. So I felt like that is important. And then Perry talks to Emily because she walks up and offers her a cigarette. And she's like, well, as long as you don't tell my husband. I was like, listen, lady, you deserve a bogue right now. Also, I think your husband's going to be able to tell that two cigarettes were smoked inside of his house. He should be taking that whiff in while he's having a cold water that E.B. is making him have to cool him down from screaming at the cops, who, by the way, are, like, asking a decent question, which is, okay, so you own a grocery store, this is a pretty nice house, and you have access to a hundred grand. Yeah, how did you come up with the 2020 equivalent of a million dollars? Yeah, how'd you do that, bud? Emily asks Perry to excuse the mess of the house. Perry says that he doesn't judge And Emily's, yeah, you don't judge, but God does. He's condemned me, and that's why my son is dead. Jesus. Emily, we should say, uh, the actress who you just mentioned, uh, I really like her from Glow. She's the wolf girl in Glow, and she's really good in this. Yeah, she pulls off being a lady with dark, sullen eyes who's sad as fuck. She tries to talk to Perry about his own son, but she can't handle it and leaves the room weeping. Very sad. She asks perry what teddy likes he says he likes fire trucks she says that charlie liked turtles which i thought sadly in that moment i just thought of the meme like i like turtles I like the, yeah the zombie like, boy i like turtles all i could think of very somber moment and i'm just thinking of a zombie child screaming about his love for turtles back at eb's office they discuss the case perry thinks it's very strange that emily slept through the kidnapping Della says that she was probably exhausted from being a housewife and taking care of the baby all day. Perry thinks the police might be right about the Dobson somehow being involved. E.B. is convinced that they are innocent because, I don't know, he can read people. He can just tell that they had nothing to do with it. I think what this scene is pointing out is that E.B. is a little past his prime. He doesn't have any edge anymore. He just wants the truth to be the easiest version. Perry is saying, you know, maybe they're drinkers while he's having a flask himself, while Della goes and gets another flask out of another book. We know that Della is taking very detailed notes, something she did in the original series, but also being a part of the conversation and being additive, which she also was in the original series. Although, in the original series, there was a counterpoint that was blatant sexism that was just in your face at all times. No blatant sexism yet. Right, well, you'd have to assume, actually, in the 30s, it would probably be slightly worse, right? (laughs) Exactly. But I feel like even as realistic as that sexism and racism would be, although I think we are going to get a hint of the racism of the 1930s, because this version of Perry's right-hand Paul that will be assumably introduced to next episode is being played by a black actor so that has to be a part of it yeah i assume that that will come up has to but the sexism part has not come up as of yet in fact the 
online or radio version of a preacher is being played by a woman. So perhaps this being made in 2020 is retroactively making sexism less of a thing. Smash cut to Perry smashing the middle-aged woman from the earlier scene. Turns out her name is Lupe. She's a Mexican woman who works at the airfield and they bang quite vigorously. He asks her to stay the night. She's like, nah, I'm going to go stay at my own place. It's literally a walk over there. And then offers him $6,000 for his farm, uh, which he laughs at. Right, which is a hundred k in $2020. So probably not something to laugh at. She, I don't think she just works there. I think she owns it. And she offers him mezcal, which he likes anything, really. First, first boobs. In the series, we got one dick and one boob. Yeah, but HBO stands for the home booby office, so not a huge remarkable thing. No, but it's important to keep track of all the nudity, as that is a hallmark of our show. Yeah, one of my, my absolute favorite iTunes review is the guy who's like, okay, yeah, it's fine for you to point out when there are dogs, but do you have to count them? <laughs> he really didn't like <laughs> when we were counting. He didn't like that we attached value to the dongs. Listen, if you don't want value attached to dongs and boobs, this is not the show for you. Perry goes to the scene of the crime, riding the trolley. A dirty vagrant is telling the story of the murder for tips. And I kept thinking, like, hey, I mean, if we were in the 30s, this would be our job. He's just recapping the the news. We are no much better than dirty vagrants. After getting off the trolley, Perry talks briefly to a uniformed police officer, but we're not sure about what. Then he breaks into the office from the kidnapping drop-off, but the cops are already there, and Ennis puts a gun to his head. Seems drastic. The other uh, detective, Holcomb, wants to know why he's here and what he's found. At first, Perry doesn't want to say, and Ennis is like, okay, well, we've already got you for B&E, so why don't we just arrest you, beat the shit out of you, and then see what you want to say. Reminiscent of the pilot episode of the original Perry Mason, where Perry Mason is a attorney and has immunity, but his right-hand man, Paul Drake, is a PI and does not have said immunity. And they're like, Paul, if you don't tell us exactly what we want, we're just going to take away your PI license. So, uh, fess up. Holcomb's ready to put the cuffs on him, so Perry gives up that he was just talking to a beat cop who said that a green car, a Phaeton, I don't, I've never seen this kind of car, was speeding away just when the body was found on the trolley and actually clipped the cable car in its rush to get out of there. Detective Ennis, who now will forever be known by me as Hothead Black Hat, because in the old Perry Mason, there was a cop that was old man Cool Hat. And Hothead Black Hat is a disgrace to old man Cool Hat's name. I know I just named both of them, but it's true nonetheless. Holcomb is now trying to be pretty cool to Perry. He's like, yeah, um, thank you for that tip. Let me give you $5, which is a pretty substantial amount of money in the 1930s. Yeah, it's like 80 bucks. And Perry is a dick to him anyway. I guess he hates cops. Holcomb still, like, trying to be okay. He's like, yeah, I wonder why we didn't get that tip. And Perry's like, yeah, the beat cop probably didn't bring it up because he's stupid. And all LAPD are fucking stupid and you're an idiot and I hate you. Hothead Black Hat does not take that well. Oh, no, this is Holcomb he's talking to. Ennis is left. Oh, Holcomb's man, actually, like, you... 
if Ennis was there, he'd yeah, be he mad would, about he'd beat it. the shit out of you. <laughs> Holcomb is now pretty angry about this, states his intentions to pin the crime on Dobson, and tells Perry dismissively to lock up once you're out of here. We port forward where Perry Mason is sitting in his makeshift office at the bottom of the morgue where Virgil works. A woman named Diane reads said messages to him, the first being from Mr. Pete Strickland from earlier, who has read her three paragraphs of something called Lipstick Girl, which is the book he was reading earlier, and she did not pay attention to that. The other message was from Walt LeBaron, from Hammersmith Pictures and the person that Perry had recently blackmailed, requesting the honor of his presence at the New Year's Eve party that is coming up, and two tickets will be at the door. And I just had a pretty straightforward first thought of that, which is, oh, that's a trap. Perry then bribes Virgil to let him photograph the body. He can barely bring himself to actually do it once he sees it, but eventually... He has Virgil cut one of the stitches from the baby's the corpse's eye so that he can pocket it, and he puts it in a little matchbox. This is like the exact opposite of a Gerber commercial for me. You know, the ones with the very cute babies? This is like the exact opposite of that, where the baby is dead and has holes in it and is looking you deep in the eyes and letting you know that it's the devil incarnate. Yeah, I mean... Kind of fucked up. I mean, the the whole thing, uh, you know, I have two young children, so this is a very cliche thing that people are like, oh, once you have kids, you know, you really can't handle scenes of children being injured or imperiled in TV. And it is kind of true to a certain degree. You know, it hits me where I live, I guess, even though now I'm making light of it. Sure. But I I agree with you. I think it's some edgelord HBO shit. They're just like, how do we make a dark origin story? How do we raise the stakes higher, as as high as possible, in the very first scene? And someone was like, I mean, we could just have there be dead babies, like as a joke. And they were like, ha perfect. Perry and Pete go to the Hollywood party. Velma Fuller is having her big debut on the stage. Afterwards, Perry goes to meet with the, the Hollywood executive he met originally, who then takes him to meet the president of the company in an empty sound stage alone. Alone, Perry. Come on. (laughs) Right. He didn't see anything negative about to happen. That's so stupid. Mr. Hammersmith, the president, is really pissed off that Perry is trying to put the screws to him and is asking for an outrageous amount, like $600. He said, you know, the original $200 was fair, and now you're trying to fuck us. So, uh, this is our revenge. Two goons take Perry's pictures and they take his gun. I had no idea what they were doing at first, but they take Perry's lighter and start lighting the tip of the barrel of his gun. And I was like, where are they going with this? Right. I was like, are they sanitizing so that they don't know who shot it? That doesn't make any... Eventually, I was like, oh, oh they're going to brand that son of a bitch. Mr. Hammersmith gives, like, the evil version of what, you know, the thing that the Hollywood people are always saying, like, we are the dream weavers. We bring the world to your doorstep for just the price of an admission ticket. But, you know, like the evil version of that. And so because we do that, Perry, you have fucked with the cosmic order of things, and now you must be punished. They give him a dollar, brand him for life, and then he walks back into the party, worse for wear, and Pete is like, where's the money? And Perry says a line that I very much enjoyed, which was, oh, they didn't give it to me. I think I overplayed it. Really? He should have just maybe asked for like $300? He probably would have gotten it. He inflated it by 
you know, six thousand twenty twenty dollars, and the Hollywood elite decided that they needed to knock them down a peg. My question is: Does this storyline, which I would call the B storyline, does it intertwine? with the A storyline, which is the murder. Because I bet with this B storyline and the pilot will probably become a C storyline next episode where the evangelical radio show gets introduced, which will be intertwining with the A. Just like, how much will this one have to do with the baby murder? Well, I, yeah, I, I'm, what I'm thinking is now that this, you know, Chubby Carmichael case is closed. Bad end. And maybe he will now have different cases that he will pick up week by week as the B plot. Right. Uh, that's what I interesting. think. Interesting. Yeah, that will be interesting. Well, well, we will find out next week. Meanwhile, somewhere in the city, a trio of shady criminals, apparently the kidnappers, are discussing their mistake that they made, which was killing the kid. The kid was never meant to die. And they're waiting for their payout to arrive. And one of them, Pinky Ring, is very nervous, and the other two are like, relax. One guy, the big guy, Black Hat, he's actually was the one who was seen at the scene of the crime, and they have, you know, a picture of a generic man in a hat on wanted posters, I guess. Right, but his point is, it's a fedora. Literally everyone wears a fedora. Everyone wears a fedora, milady. Who should come with a briefcase full of money? But Detective Ennis. Oh my god. Hothead, cool hat. I knew he was a bad apple. He lays the suitcase out on the table, opens it up. I like this move. Opens up the briefcase and it's empty. And the dude at the desk is like, hey, what's going on here? And then he shoots through the briefcase into that guy's head, dead. Black Hat goes to go to the other room, presumably to get a weapon to defend himself. Shot in the neck. How did you not have a weapon beforehand? Pinky Ring tries to make it for the door, shot in the arm, but falls down and tries to play dead, I guess? Successfully, because Ennis then walks over to make sure Black Hat is really dead. Black Hat looks really confused, and I guess that's why Ennis is like, well, they made the car, uh, and, and I blame you guys, and I'm not getting caught, so collateral damage, sorry. Right, so he puts his foot on Black Hat's neck to suffocate him after his gun clicks and was not working anymore. And Black Hat was basically like pretty much dead when Ennis turns around and Pinky has run off into the night. Pinky Ring's plan here doesn't make a ton of sense. He gets to the fire escape and instead of going down, goes up. Okay, that mistake number one. Sure. Then he tries to like the Matrix jump from one roof to the other. And, you know, like Neo at the beginning of The Matrix, fucks it up and falls to his death. Right. Turns out he is not the one. He has an arm that is currently bleeding, does not make the jump, and he falls far. Lands on some concrete. Steps, even, which has to be worse. So my initial thought about this scene is like, well, haven't they given away most of the mystery now? So it's like, oh, now we know the perpetrators of the kidnapping are dead, and the motive was money. And that it's being covered up by an LAPD detective. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's there's there's a lot of drama going on, but it's not really a mystery. We know what the deal is basically now, right? So, I guess the mysteries that are still up in the air are: How did the Dodsons get a hundred k? What does the evangelical radio show have to do with? The baby's murder and the cover-up by Detective Ennis. Perhaps it is deeper than we have seen, but right, 
the people who were holding a dead baby at the beginning, now deceased. At home, Perry Mason is very drunk. It's New Year's Eve, but, you know, it's after midnight because he was already at a midnight celebration. He tries to call his son, but his bitter ex won't allow him to. Well, actually, maybe she's not that bitter. It's pretty reasonable to be like, no, Perry, it's 2 a.m. Your son's asleep. You should be asleep, too. Right. Her point was, okay, so you sent Teddy a Christmas gift. It didn't have enough stamps on it because you fucked up. So they were like, do you want to pay for the stamps, miss? And she was like, no, he hasn't paid child support in a month. So send this back, please. And he's like, how dare you? Also, Perry, you know, maybe it's a little bit awkward, but you could have just delivered. You live in the same state. You could have just brought the gift in person. Mm, It is like five hours north and he has no money. But uh, Linda, his ex-wife, played by Gretchen Maul, also of Deep River, Connecticut. Everyone in this show is from Connecticut, except for Rathy Reese, who is not from America. And, all, by the way, also by in 310 to Yuma, which I think we did a podcast about at some yeah, point. Yeah, we did a whole recap of that. Check it out. Yeah. Manchester by the Sea, Boardwalk Empire. And Perry is really drunk. Lupe walks in after Perry gets hung up on and she says that her second husband tracked her down to Caracas and she, I think, shot him in the dick? Is that what she said? Did she shoot him in the dick? Yeah, character's getting shot uh, in the dick, but it happened off screen, so I don't care. No, me either, but good to know. Lupe invites him to come on vacation. She's getting out of the city for a while and she'd like to spend the time with a handsome gentleman. He's almost, like, too drunk to even understand the proposition, and he takes a bat and smashes the toy fire truck that he had bought for Teddy. Right before he does that, he does the everybody is up to something, everybody is guilty monologue that is in the trailers, and he smashes the fire truck, then he comes back in the room and says, they don't make those things so good. And Lupe's like, oh, poor Bobby. Looking at the smashed fire truck seems to hit Perry with some kind of inspiration. And he gets all his case notes and lays them out side by side on the floor. And he examines a picture of Charlie and says to himself, See, like turtles, huh? And the show cuts to black. So someone needs to cut that kid saying, I like turtles. And Matthew Reese being like, See, like turtles, huh? Yeah. He's looking at a picture of the ceramic turtle. I love a good whodunit. I don't know how much this has to do with Perry Mason. I know it's supposed to be an origin story, but so far there were two scenes that had slight homages to the original. Della Street is very close to who Della Street is in the original as well. And when Paul Clark gets introduced, we'll we'll see how that goes as well. I'm always down for a good whodunit, though. I really like them. I just hope that this is one of those ones where I can find out by, you know, like, I watched this show diligently. Every time there was something on screen, I paused it. I'm taking copious notes about said show. If I don't find out what the mystery is prior to the mystery being told to us, then they fucked up. Well, yeah, well, that's where I, 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 you know, we don't know all the circumstances. Surely there's a few things that we still need to find out. I just wonder if they haven't given away the game a little bit too much, showing us the perpetrators and then showing them be being killed Right, by Red Scare in the pilot episode. But other than that, I loved this, and I'm really excited to see the rest of the show. It's going to be how many episodes long? Eight. Eight episodes, so 
HBO's really uh, getting comfy with those eight-episode seasons now. Yeah. Next it will be six. They just keep chopping off episodes. But yeah, great pilot. The aesthetic of the show is amazing. The music is amazing. You know, I've never really seen Matthew Reese in anything, but, I mean, I like him. And I like Edward Norton, so it stands to reason that I would like uh, discount Edward Norton. Wow. I think I agree, but wow. Yeah, I, I also really enjoyed it. I think, you know, the amount of time we put in to watching the original Perry Mason, I hope it informs this show a bit more than it did the pilot. I will also say that the actual show itself, if I knew nothing about it and I just watched the hour of television, I would come out at the end of it thinking, oh, it's a whodunit. That's cool. I want to know who or what the mystery holds for me. Right? Mm-hmm. But there's this also this other thing that permeates my brain. It's the thing I think about the most whenever I'm watching a new thing at 9 p.m. on HBO, which is I was watching this this morning, and then by chance this afternoon, just to stop working for a moment, I fell down a YouTube rabbit hole watching reaction videos to original Game of Thrones episodes. And I know Perry Mason doesn't have the Game of Thrones budget, and I know Perry Mason is a murder mystery, meets a legal drama, meets an origin story. I know it's not supposed to be what Game of Thrones was, but it's difficult for me to get to the end of a pilot and know I didn't feel the same as I did when the pilot of Game of Thrones ended. Because that's what we're trying to do here, I assume, if HBO is not trying to make another Game of Thrones, like another TV show that 20 million people on Sunday nights at 9 p.m. were going to watch, then I don't know what they were trying what they would be trying to do right if they weren't trying to have a hit on their hands but like in an effort to find something that i love just as much as i did game of thrones which at this point perhaps i'm romanticizing but it it's it is making other experiences watching television shows especially ones that are at 9 p.m. on hbo worse for me because once you do have an emotional attachment of that strength to a piece of entertainment it's like a drug and every new hit you take that is supposed to replace that drug you are missing desperately and that doesn't hit quite as hard as you want it to and now then like perpetuates my slow but sure systematic destruction of my own mental health while I'm trying to like a show just like oh man I wish I could just like this well certainly it would be best for HBO and also by extension probably this podcast for there to be another huge big cultural touchstone kind of totally ubiquitous epic drama that everyone would be watching and discussing over the water cooler. But not every show needs to be that. And I'm a very big fan of, like, period pieces and genre fiction. So while I'm with you that it would be nice if there were another killer app on HBO, right? Like, there is no Game of Thrones replacement uh, even for me, the end of Game of Thrones was no replacement for the beginning of Game of Thrones, right? Sure. But not everything can be that. And then, you know, maybe the next Game of Thrones show, what is it called? The House of the Dragon? Right. When that comes out in, in, in 2030, maybe sure. that will be that, you know? The thing is, Perry Mason premiered last night, Sunday at 9pm. Watchmen is now free, I believe. HBO just made it. And with the ongoings that the world is living through at the moment, Watchmen is... Relevant. Incredibly relevant, right? I wonder if more people watched Watchmen last night, a show that has already aired more than Perry Mason. I just, I hope Perry Mason is good enough to get to, like, where people talk about Six Feet Under, where 
the amount of people who watched Six Feet Under are not even close to the amount of people who've watched The Wire or The Sopranos or Game of Thrones. Right, well, TV was a smaller space back then. Right, but the way people talk about Six Feet Under is the same way people like talk about The Leftovers, one of my favorite shows. Not a lot of people watched it, but the audience that did is small and fervent. They care about that shit. So I think you can't... I don't have the expectation that Perry Mason will be the next Game of Thrones, but I do hope it's the next Six Feet Under, you know? Yes, we, we got a lot of HBO shows we got to go through. Uh, you know, assumably we have the rest of our lives, but we eventually we'll recap and review Game of Thrones, and we'll recap and review uh, Six Feet Under, and and maybe I'll drag Ryan kicking and screaming through recapping and reviewing True Blood. No, I will not live that life again, James. That show is it has doomed me once, never again. You sound like Red from Us. No, you see no, that? that yeah, that can't be. Thank you for listening, guys. If you're just listening, it means a lot to us. If you really go and go the extra mile, please share the show by word of mouth to your friends and family and loved ones. Hey, James. Mm-hmm. You sound, I sound like Red. Yes. If this show's not good, I'll be blue. <laughs> Got him. I quit. Um, <laughs> you can also, uh, if you want to go further than that, you can leave us reviews on all the relevant podcast apps. Or you can follow us on Twitter. He's at Westworld Ryan. I'm at James Watches Men. Not related to the HBO show. It's something else I got going on. Um, <laughs> it's just a very personal thing. I would like you to not ask me about. And then finally, if you love the show a lot, you could support it on Patreon. We are the HBO Boys on Patreon. By doing so, you will be unlocking two bonus episodes every month, as well as access to our growing list uh, back catalog of bonus episodes and access to our private Patreon's only Discord server where you can chat live with Ryan and I and Major Woody and uh, Mm. we will shout you out at the end of each episode. And hopefully join the crew who is watching Perry Mason with us so you can give us comments and you can give us questions. If you comment or question about this show, we will talk about it on the episode. So get into it. Our patrons, by the way, are Atheism is Unstoppable, Bacaman, Brent Gen, Carol Andreas, Chris Wood, Cliff Wilding, Craig, Day 11 Westworld, Hardboiled Greg, Hello underscore Yo, James Christopher, James Watch My Dong. <gasps> I'm watching. I'll take it. I take that 100%. John Jers, Lee, Major Woody, and Nicole, thank you very much for the dollar. You usually get two podcasts a month. This month is like three or four, like four hours almost of free content. And buy free, I mean a dollar. Give us a dollar. Okay, bye. And join us next week for Perry Mason, episode two, The Case of the Truncated Trolley Car. You're kidding. Is it actually called that? No, it's just called chapter two. This is I'm, bullshit. I'm going to come up with names for each one. Don't worry. You fucking have to. Because this chapter two shit, I cannot deal with. I'm James. I'm Ryan. This has been the HBO Boys podcast. You didn't say with a Z. With a Z. James came up with that, so. (laughs) Wait, did I really? No, I did. Oh, okay.